Welcome to the Real Estate Mindset Podcast, hosted by Eric Nelson and brought to you by Wild Oak Capital. Eric is a real estate investor, business owner, and performance coach. Throughout this series, Eric explores the mindset behind why certain investors are so successful and how we can learn from their achievements and failures. Eric asks the tough questions around the habits, discipline, mindset, and more required to achieve the most ambitious goals. Thank you for being here and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Real Estate Mindset. This is your host, Eric Nelson. And today's guest was awesome. He, he really opened up about his experience, one, in, in real estate and kind of like tips his cards, right? Like I asked the question, like, how did you do it? And he really kind of lays it out, which is really cool. I mean, he's really transparent. And then the same thing for passive investing. So he's been investing uh, as a limited partner and asking him what he does, you know, what how he chooses deals. And he kind of opens opens up the door to that as well. And then of course, the questions around mindset are great too, but just a really solid family man. Just a really good conversation. So I love this show. So without further ado, I'll bring in Phil. Phil Muller, thanks for being here, man. It's, it's absolutely my pleasure to have you on. Thanks for the time. It's good to be here, Eric. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. In fact, even in the pre-show, I mean, we just chatted for quite a while about all the stuff you have cooking and I'm excited to hear more. So let's, let's just dive right in. What, what's kind of your background? I know you have a lot, you know, started with single family. It sounds like you're pretty well self-funded at this point, but give us your background. Where'd you get started and where are you headed? Yeah. So first I, always, I, I tend to forget this. So first married to my wife, Marsha for 14 years, we have five young kids. We're from Ohio. So ages 11 to two. So that is a lot of our time in the first place. Grew up in kind of an entrepreneurial family, always kind of knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but I went down the corporate path, graduated in engineering in 05, started buying single family houses in 2013 with kind of the goal to maybe allow my wife to work less and over time, perhaps myself as well. And then we got exposed to multifamily, I think in 2017, and we just started understanding the multifamily game, how that works the value add game, which was really game changing for us, not just from a cash flow perspective, but from a equity growth perspective. And once once we learned that, the light bulb kind of went off and um, we started acquiring a, a little bit more units in from 2017 up until just recently as well. So we were really focused on multifamily and have been for the last about five years. For the last eight months, so our, our multifamilies are running well, for the last eight months, um, we've been doing a lot of passive investing in different limited partnership deals, like the deals you have yourself or others, just trying to, to, to diversify into different asset classes in different markets that you know maybe are higher growth than Ohio, things like that. So that's the really high level summary, but I'm happy to dig in wherever wherever we can. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess let's get into a little bit more. I mean, if, if you're willing, I don't want to press too hard if you would prefer not to talk about a little bit more about how you funded these deals along the way. Cause I think one question people say is like, how could you possibly buy an apartment building? You know, and and I know because it's like this story that a lot of people tell, but it'd be kind of interesting. So, like, did you guys just save up a little bit, buy a single family or two, maybe refinance? Like, how did the sort of cash flow go along the way if you're willing to be open about it? I am. Yeah. That's and it's a great question because I, you know, I kind of take it for granted now. But when I think back, it was it was definitely an evolution. It took a lot of time and I did not have any of it figured out on my first deal. So our first single family houses, 
we bought, we just, we saved, put 20% down. You know, these houses were probably in the $75,000 range. So maybe $15,000 down on our first one. I think we did that every maybe five or six months. And maybe it was a little bit less than that, but around that for the first two or three. And then on our first, on our fourth single family home, we also had a little bit of equity in our house. We we used a home equity line of credit. We bought a house from share of sale for for fifty thousand dollars. We used our HELOC, so it was it's term to cash, as you know. And then we put like ten thousand dollars into it, so we have sixty thousand dollars into this house. It appraises for eighty thousand dollars, so we borrow seventy five percent of that, or the sixty thousand that we have into it. And all of a sudden, we're in this deal for no money at all after the rehab, and we have twenty thousand dollars of equity in it. So we didn't use any of our cash and we're like, oh, we can go, go do this again. So we we kind of did a combination of, you know, worked our W-2, saved our money, invested, plus did some of these burrs where we rehabbed them and, and pulled the capital out and refinanced them. And we did that from 2013 to 2017. That was a good time in the real estate industry. So as assets grew, we started to build some equity. And then our first multifamily deal we found networking at a real estate investor association meeting. We went and we worked with closely with a bank. It was a really, really low cost per door, like insanely low acquisition. It had some capex to it. So I think it was $680,000. We put like $120,000 into it. We brought in other partners that knew what they were doing in multifamily because I didn't at the time. So we brought in another partner that had experience there. We worked with the bank and we funded 80% of the acquisition plus 80% of the renovation costs. So it really wasn't a ton of capital. And we had four partners. So it wasn't a huge investment. I want to say it just wasn't a major investment at the time. So we kind of broke it into smaller pieces. And then the future, the next one, the next multifamily, we also self-funded, but we might have even got 80 or 85% LTV on a pretty good purchase. And then after that is really when we started playing the real estate game a little bit more. And we sold the first one. We did 1031 exchange from that one into the, the third acquisition, which was the, the bigger, started to be the bigger one, a 70 unit. And since then, we've kind of either, if it was a smaller investment, we might have used our own capital or we sold single family houses that we built up over time, 1031 them into the apartment complexes and just kind of have played that game depending on you know, where the puzzle pieces were, what fit at that time. So it's a couple of different strategies, bank debt, um, local banks, great business partners that we've worked with that have been flexible and, and supportive of our business plan has been helpful as well. I love it, man. There's so much in there. And, and this is what's a cool, it's the reason I asked the question. So again, thanks for your transparency, but you know, real estate is one of those things that I've been saying lately will sneak up and you'll build wealth. Like it'll kind of sneak up on you, you know, like you buy a rental or two, a few years later, you get a little appreciation. You've paid it down a little bit and all of a sudden you have some equity. And you're like, well, wow, I could refinance out of this and take some of that equity and do the next one. And so it's kind of a it's kind of a get rich slow game, but it does tend to sneak up on you, you know? And a lot of people start that way. Like that's why we started buying real estate was, I was like, well, we want to supplement our retirement because I was self-employed. I didn't really have a retirement account, right? So I was like, that was basically the beginning of it. But then just to your point, you start kind of, the chips start falling in a sense and you start learning more techniques. Burr is an awesome technique, right? So you typically fix it up and you refinance, and you get your cash back and you're still holding the asset. So that's yeah. such a cool technique to do over and over again. And pretty soon, again, you've built up quite a bit of equity. 
now to your point, right? The market was really, really good over that period of time. It may not be in the next two or three years coming, but all that to say, you're still going to have some pay down. And if you buy right, there's going to be some opportunities. It's always a, there's always a place to make some money in real estate. So I really appreciate your honesty because it, it doesn't take someone getting an inheritance or being super, super rich. It just takes some diligence to save up to get started. Yeah. And a couple, I mean, I didn't even mention it, but refinance and we did that, we did that right at acquisitions, but also, you know, because we started in 2013 and then as values grew, there was a couple of those single family homes where we said, Hey, we want to hold this long-term, but we just have such low leverage. We, we added some leverage to it. Basically we refinanced that, used some of that capital to grow. One of our smaller apartment complexes was a significant value add. So we were able to, to do that as well, but it takes time. And your point, you know, a lot of people look at real estate and it's just really slow. I mean, making a hundred or two hundred dollars a month of cash flow on a single family house isn't that exciting, right? It's like I did all that work for two hundred dollars a month, but if you look at over a ten year period, what what you can make from that individual one, you can make a fair amount. It's not going to make you wealthy, but if you can start to stack those horizontal lines of income, then that's where it gets exciting. So it, but it absolutely takes time and persistence to to uh, grow a, a portfolio. Love it. So <laughs> I'm kind of grilling you here like because I'm asking you personal questions, but let's shift gears a little bit into the limited family or limited partnership stuff. So from your perspective, because I also think there's some listeners out there who might say, wow, that passive income sounds good. Limited partnership sounds good. From your perspective, how has it been? And then maybe what are some things that stand out for you to invest with somebody, if that makes sense? Yeah. So first, you know, I would tell people that if they're if they're looking to invest in real estate and they're willing to do the legwork themselves and they enjoy that, or there's parts of it that they enjoy, they're going to make more return on their money doing their own active real estate. That's my opinion. If I focused on my own portfolio and what I was doing, I'd make more money on my money. But it really becomes at some point a, a return on your money in time. And that's why I'm shifting to a fair amount of time on limited, limited partner investing. I'm investing a lot of time right now to study these operators, to study these markets, to study these deals and really dig in and assess them pretty thoroughly. But my understanding and networking in this space will pay me for the next 30 or 40 years or however long I'm fortunate enough to live because I'm I'm just becoming better at this game, if you will. So I really enjoyed it. Specifically, you asked on limited partnerships, what do you look for? Sponsor or the operator first, second, the market, third, the deal and the debt, which is particularly important right now. The sponsor, someone that you know, like, and trust, or a strong referral to that person is really important. And that do they have a track record? There's a lot of valuation that can go into just a sponsor. A lot of people want to jump to the deal because that's the easiest thing to maybe look at or understand. But the sponsor, the market is maybe a little bit more straightforward, quite frankly, population growth, job growth, and landlord-friendly politics is what we look for. And then the deal itself, you're looking at it closely. Does it make sense? Are there kind of some assumptions that are too aggressive or not? And then, of course, the debt is is really important, particularly now. You know, we like long-term fixed debt products right now. Just it's not as, you know, sexy maybe as some of the returns that we might, people might have been showing a year or two ago, but it's just more safe and secure. And um, you know, you you have a lot of options and exit options with with safe debt. Yeah, we were actually just talking about this in the, in the pre-show. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, first of all, I love how you started the sponsor because that's number one. I mean, again, ask 
ask them for references if you have no other way, right? Like if there's no other way for you to ask someone else who's invested with them to say, hey, can you can I talk to a handful of your investors? Yeah. And if you know if they don't supply that, there's a red flag. Because you know, like I've had that before. People as a new investor with us say, Hey, can I speak with some of your investors? Of course I get their uh, permission first. So I'll call that person and say, Hey, I have a new investor. Do you mind, you know, spending five minutes telling them what we're style, what our style is like, how it's been for you. Most investors are like, no, sure. Of course. Happy to, happy to chat. Right. Yep. So that's a, such a good tip is number one, in, in the sponsor, because any deal can, we've said this before, a great deal can be terrible with a bad sponsor and a mediocre deal can be great with a really good sponsor. So yep. love how you start there. It's funny that you go to market next before the deal. Cause I agree. I mean, Again, it's like you could have the best apartment building on the planet in a town that's losing, you know, hundred thousand people a year. It's, it's probably a little bit dicey there. Yep. And then the deal itself, and the deal is hard to evaluate unless you have really good underwriting skills. But you could ask the questions. You know, what are you projecting cap rate over the next couple of years? What are you projecting? And then, of course, debt. Yeah, I mean, this is what we were just chatting about in the pre-show. Is is there bridge loan? Is there something short-term debt on it? Because right now that's extremely dangerous. So I just absolutely love everything you said. Yep. And I think that I think the short-term debt or bridge debt that a lot of people have done or maybe are even still doing right now, that'll just create some opportunities. I don't want my I don't want my portfolio to be the ones that are opportunities where people need to exit earlier than they had planned in, in their business plan. So yeah, and you know, you could argue maybe market and deal and one or the other. But without a doubt, the sponsor can fix a bad market and a bad deal, maybe. But a bad operator is probably going to mess up a good market and a good deal. So that's that's number one. And there's a lot of other, you know, how much skin in the game. You know, I heard a question someone asked last Friday of your employee base. How much are they, if they're accredited, of course, how much are they investing in a deal? Just some really good questions. And I think it's like an interview for an employee. Just kind of dig in and ask for details. And, you know, you, you can learn a lot and, and take your time in that process. Yeah, I love it. So what type of deals? So have you invested passively to now? Or are you kind of looking to moving forward? We, we have invested in some different. Yeah. So what I like about limited partner investing or passive investing, which is, you know, there was a post by Dave Ramsey saying no realist. I don't know if you saw this on LinkedIn, but, you know, no real estate is passive. Well, first of all, I think he's right in that. If you're managing your own properties, it's not 100% passive. I'd, I think it's more passive than truly trading time for money. But I think limited partner investing can truly be 100% passive income. So I'm liking that because it's a, just a, I'm trying to maximize return on my time and money. We started looking at a lot of deals several months ago. So we've invested in self-storage fund, mobile home park, a couple of multifamily, which is you know where my you know highest comfort level is. And those different deals can offer different types of returns. So for example, you know, mobile home parks and self storage, they might offer, depending on the type and if it's a value add, they might offer earlier cash on cash return, like higher eight to 12% in years one and two. Whereas a value add multifamily might be a little bit lower, but there might be a higher exit opportunity in year five or six. So there's just, or multifamily can be higher cash flow, but it might not be in as good of a market. So there's just a lot of different factors and it's important. One other thing that we do on all the deals is we ask for the underwriting. You know, a lot of time you can get the offering or the pitch deck and you can see the high level financials. We always want to dig in more and see how aggressive are they being on their revenue growth assumptions? What is their market rate rent growth assumptions? Exit cap rate, like you said, 
just all those things. We look at debt service coverage ratio to make sure that the capital will be protected. And if, you know, if things don't, don't go to plan, which things happen, not everything's going to go to plan. The only, the only guarantee of that business plan and forecast is that it'll be wrong one way or the other, right? It's not going to be exact. So digging into those financials and understanding them are, is also very important. But yeah, so I like it because I can get in different asset classes, as I said, and I can get in different markets. You know, I'm in, I'm in Denver, I'm in Georgia, I'm in Florida, and I'm in a self-storage fund that's kind of nationwide and diversified across the nation as well. So it just gives a lot of flexibility. ATMs is another one that I'm, I've invested in. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think this is all really good info because I think it's hard again to explain it at times or maybe even like, how do you find these deals? You know, like how do you, but it's, but there's a lot of info out there. And the other thing is like, you know, us as sponsors, we, there's a handful of folks that ask for the underwriting. I'll be honest. Most of our investors don't really care because maybe they don't want to know, or maybe they don't, maybe just so, so trust level there. Right. Or maybe the yep. pitch deck gives enough information, which is totally fine. But for the people who do ask for the underwriting, I'm like, absolutely. And if you catch something, let me know immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I think is I, I'm early in it too. So as I, as I work to vet sponsors and I get to know them and I get to know how they operate, what their reports look like. And I see, you know, if I'm, if I'm two years in with a sponsor and everything has been as good or better than what they forecasted, if you will, I'm going to build trust and I'll probably still ask for that underwriting. I'm also an engineer and detail oriented, you know, that's my background. So I like to, I like, I enjoy kind of evaluating these things, but I'm sure that will change over time, right? Where I'll, I'll build more and more trust over time. And then that will, you know, as long as they're doing their due diligence, which that's part of the trust I'm building with them, then I can maybe back off on my own separate underwriting. So that's a good point, right? And yeah, if if you've worked with different investors for a long time, I'm sure there's some that will look into it and some that won't. It's a trust trust thing. Yeah. I mean, you use the words know, like, and trust, and that's kind of the industry standard more or less. People say that a lot about sponsors, but it's a perfect description. Do you know the person? If you don't, are you willing to spend a you know a couple hours to get to know them, hear about their process, all that stuff? Do you like them? Is there someone you could have a drink with, right? Or have play golf with or something? And then do you trust them? And that's probably the most important is like, if you know, like, and trust that person and you know you can get behind them, that's going to be as valuable as any underwriting. Because the, again, that underwriting is an educated guess. Absolutely. And the other thing you said in there, right? I mean, from a, you know, there, it, it can be overwhelming. There's so many sponsors in all these different asset classes throughout the US and everywhere. So getting to know them and networking, you know, I went to a conference with left field, it's called left field investor group. There's um, 1200 people in this, in this group. And it was in Columbus, Ohio last Friday, I got to know multiple different sponsors at a personal level. And the industry is, it, it, it feels massive when you start. And, and for me, it's getting smaller and smaller, if that makes sense, because all of a sudden, this person knows that person and, and you can network within the industry. So again, I've been spending a lot of time on, I've been a very active passive investor, but I'm diving in and I'm enjoying it. And again, I know that this will help me in my investments for a very long time as I build, build out my network and education in the space. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are, I mean, Phil, again, thanks for being transparent because this is really, really valuable information. Like if I was a passive investor and, you know, to your point, I invest all our all deals as well. So I'm, I'm technically both. But if I was a new passive investor, I'd say, well, how do you do that? How do you get into this? Like all that stuff. So this is really, really valuable information. So we'll shift gears a little bit. We'll, we'll jump into some questions. The first question is, do you have a morning routine? 
I do. I'd like it to be more consistent, but no, it's pretty good. Five kids, man. If you have any kind of morning routine, you're killing it. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure people have heard of the morning. The Miracle Morning is a great book and a a lot of people follow that. I try to follow it. I, I get up around six, try to get a workout in, whether it's Peloton or run. I try to get outside, even in Ohio when it's crappy weather, I'll try to get out there here. Um, over the next few months, I, I try to do a meditation, although I'm not great at it. But I try to do that, make occasional journaling. And I, I try to help. So the kids, the kids are up from seven to eight. So I, I try to be with the kids a little bit during that time, help out, whether that's with breakfast, getting them ready for school, things like that. Hopefully spend some time with them having fun. I played one-on-one with my son this morning before he got on the bus because it's nice here. So yeah, I, I typically don't really get into work until after the kids get on the bus, but I try to get some things done before then for sure. Love it. Yeah. I just, I asked the question because I just love like hearing the over and over is a similar answer. Like, yeah, like I get my mind right before the day starts. And I have a similar routine as you. Like I get up, let's say an hour before my kids and that's super valuable because then you kind of like have this time to do what you need to do to get your head wrapped around one, just being a dad. I mean, that's that alone is kind of chaotic in the morning, but then two, like, okay, what does the day bring? You know, so really love, really love the answer. So next question is what books are you reading or what books can you recommend? So, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad then said a lot, Go Giver. Go Giver is a book that just has really had a big impact on me. I think I read it maybe five years ago and I'm not claiming to be that person. I just try to follow that guide and it has, you know, it's worked well for me. You, you help people, you support them, you, you know, you, you just give them some effort to help them out. And maybe that'll return sometime. Maybe it won't, but that book has had a, a big impact on me. And then, you know, I would say I'm reading King Me right now, which is all about just uh, being a good dad. So that's that's one that I'm just 30 or so pages into. And uh, I'm really intrigued by that. So it's called uh, King I, don't know, me? I, I don't have the verdict yet, but there's some past ones in, in current. Love it. And it's called King Me, that book? King Me. Yep. Okay. Love the recommendation. I haven't heard that one yet. So there's like a dad group that I'm part of that's like really powerful and it's helped me with a handful of things too, but just uh, looking for some more parenting books. So that's a cool one. Yeah. I'm um, trying to dig into that more because I, I I tend to naturally gravitate towards business or leadership or other things. And I'm trying, trying to really focus in on that and and keep improving in that area, hopefully. Very cool, man. Being a being a dad's a hard job and it's, it's an important one, but oh, that's super cool. All right. So what, so we've ever had a coach or a mentor, maybe a paid coach or mentor in the past. And if you paid for it, was it worth it? Yeah, I would say first, definitely a lot of mentors in my corporate career quite. So they were, they were awesome and extremely helpful. A couple have come to mind and they were, they, they had a big impact on me from a leadership development perspective. So that was, you know, mentors and coaches are really, really valuable, strong leaders, leadership. I'm a, I'm a strong believer in, in good leadership. So a lot of people had a positive impact that way. And then I work with Jason Drees coaching um, right now as well. If you've heard, heard of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just meet with someone like on a monthly basis and uh, it really helps hold me accountable, think through, you know, what direction I want my business to go or whatever, whatever it might be. So yeah, I would say to your audience that if you have a good mentor or coach, hang on to that and leverage it. And if you don't look for it, and I would even say, until, you know, maybe a year ago, I didn't really have a lot of mentors or coaches in the real estate space. And, you know, maybe I could say, I wish I had, I don't have any regrets, but I, you know, it would, it can certainly accelerate things. And I could see where the visibility and the things I'm seeing now through just coaching and mentoring 
if I would have understood those, you know, five years ago, maybe I'd be further along. Again, I'm super grateful for where I'm at, but they're, they're, they can obviously help accelerate things. Awesome. All right. Final question is two parts. The first one is, is what is your definition of success? Yeah, I think someone is successful. And I, I think about this a lot. If they can live their purpose and that's not mine, not, you know, that's their purpose. What, what do they think? Why are they here? What are they trying to do? If they can not even accomplish it, but put their effort, like give concerted effort and time towards their purpose. I think that defines success. Love it. That's super cool. So I guess, you know, the, the reason I asked that part first is why do you think you're successful and maybe others not so much? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I can't speak for, I would say persistence, maybe even naivety towards believing these books that I've read or these mentors or coaches that I've had. I just believe people and that what they said would work and I've stuck to it and I've been persistent and I've been fortunate enough where it's worked for me. So yeah, I would say just, you know, studying, I'll say history, but just other successful people, what they've done, buying into it, knowing why you want to do that, what, like what success means to you and what you're pursuing, being clear on that, and then just staying persistent to pursue that. Oh, so good. All right, Phil. Well, this has been an awesome show. The final question is, how can people find you? How can they reach out and get in touch with you? Yeah, my website www.molerre.com. So Molar Real Estate, but re.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can shoot me an email at phil at molerre.com as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. This has been, this has been awesome. My pleasure to have you on. Eric, I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Well, what a good show. I mean, the pre and post show is fun. Turns out he's a Broncos fan, which makes him even cooler. <laughs> Our Broncos are struggling this year. So that's kind of a funny uh, side conversation afterwards, but just a really cool guy. Good family person. Really enjoyed talking with him. And I thought it was pretty cool how transparent he was. So hopefully you gained something out of it. Again, thanks for being here. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Mindset Podcast. If you've enjoyed the content today, Please follow this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to head over to wildoakcapital.com for more information or to connect with Eric directly. Please take a moment to leave a review or tell a friend about what you've listened to today. We hope you'll tune in again soon.